Good afternoon, everyone. I knew if you meditated long enough and hard enough, the sun would come out again. <laughs> so thank you for your efforts. So far, our retreat has been focused on settling the mind, developing the power of mindfulness, opening the heart, stimulating compassion, love and kindness. This afternoon I'd like to point to another aspect of the Buddha Dharma that happens and that we can focus on also, we can choose to focus on, and that is the question of identity and the nature of reality. But in particular identity, I sometimes think all of the Buddha's teaching can be summarized in a knock-knock joke. <laughs> so the disciples come to the, the Buddha and they say, and the Buddha answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over again until you do get it. The spiritual path can be seen as a question of identity because how we come to understand ourselves in the scheme of things and how we feel, it determines how we feel about our lives and how we treat each other and the environment. So the question is asked in many different ways. The Hopi say you must ask three questions. Where did I come from? Where am I going? Who am I? Source, of course, Socrates said, know thyself. In Zen, they have some colorful ways of putting the question. Who is it that goes in and out of these six sense doors? Or who is it that's dragging this corpse around? The Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. He made that a very central part of his teaching. Unfortunately, we are all born with a case of mistaken identity, believing that we are in here and the world is out there, hardly ever acknowledging that the world is in here as well, always feeling as though we are acting on the world, rarely recognizing that the world is acting through us. A caveat, of course, there's always a caveat, and that is that all of life has a sense of self, of its own integrity, the world out there, the self here. But the Buddha's great breakthrough was to see through the membrane of self, and to realize that we co-arise with all things, that we are not separate, we are not disconnected from everything else in the world. I think it's really interesting to note that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. If you had come up to a 
medieval peasant or a wandering desert nomad a couple hundred years ago and said, what do you want to do with your life? They wouldn't know what you're talking about. The uh, American psychologist Rollo May says, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. Evidence from early Greek literature suggests that uh, the Greeks believed that all the voices in their heads were the voices of the gods, which uh, we would think of as somewhat schizophrenic or sick, psychotic. Of course, now we believe all the voices in our heads are ours, <laughs> which is its own form of craziness. All of life has a sense of self, but we seem to have come to an uncomfortable extreme at this moment here in the land of personalized license plates. <laughs> the story we tell ourselves is all about me, my personal drama. We have lost what anthropologists call participation mystique. We have little connection to other stories of a tribe, a people, a community, nature, or the cosmos. We live in a time of amythia, a culture of narcissism, it's been called. So this individualism, this emphasis on the individual self and its own destiny and its own um, wants and desires and salvation, its individual salvation, is the story we've been telling ourselves. And humans have become so arrogant, really. I mean, we are a great species, and we, it seems like we're alpha species, right? We dominate. Uh, but we've come to believe that the entire world was made just for us. Our major religions have come to regard the earth as a kind of training planet where we come to learn some lessons or burn off some karma and then we, we go off to some other place where we truly belong. But these old stories are somewhat dysfunctional. They're at the root of our individual suffering and our collective malaise and the environmental crisis. It's interesting because science is starting to tell us a whole new story about who we are, which says that we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. And science is telling us that we are related to every being that's ever lived. We all share the DNA, which seems to be this magical molecule that separates life from non-life. And we're all made out of the, that code that uh, comes out in various ways, our form being one of them. We now know that our bodies are made of uh, the he heavy elements formed in the explosion of supernova in the early history of the universe. We are 
stardust, literally. Our bodies are shaped by the dance of life with nature, nature demanding changes, demanding adaptations, so we take on new camouflage, new ways of movement. You know there were no legs for the first two billion years of life on this planet because there was no land to walk on. It's like nature is the sculptor and we are the art forms that are sculpted. The story of evolution is our collective biography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, as life itself got started. Ours is the shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. The single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body. The embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers, and toes, features of reptiles and amphibians as we cycle through the DNA of ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth, we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. Now, this new story about ourselves is really interesting, but it can lie rusting in our neocortex without having any effect on our lives without entering the marrow of our beings or being the story that we, we live our lives from. And that's uh, where the Buddha Dharma comes in. As uh, the philosopher Alan Watts said, we don't need a new Bible, we need a new experience of what it means to be I. So the Buddha said, develop this power of mindfulness and begin to explore yourself. Go into the wilderness of self and examine the body and the breath. Examine it by experiencing it, feeling it. Examine emotions. Examine your mind states your thoughts, and question. He said, this construction self, this construction self, what is its origin? What is its ancestry? Where does it come from? The hint is that you might find after the exploration that you don't own any of it that is not exclusively yours, that you belong to the world. Consider the wisdom that you might discover through just paying attention to your breath. For me, I started, as many of us do, paying attention to my breath as the object of concentration. It's a great, a great object for developing 
uh, focus of mind. But after a while, I started to realize, and actually quite quickly, but more and more it became the predominant experience, that when I was paying attention to breath, I was realizing that breath was happening, that I wasn't doing it. I was letting go of any sense of being in charge of it, and it continued to breathe. I continued to breathe, or life continued to breathe through me. I think Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because you can breathe without thinking, but you can't think without breathing. As I said the other day in the guided meditation, you know, with a little reflection, I realized that breath connected me to all of the life of the planet, that I was exchanging nutrient with the plant kingdom, and that the planet itself breathes. You know, there's an increase of uh, carbon dioxide on the dark side of the planet and an increase in oxygen on the sunlight side of the planet. So the, the earth breathes every day takes a big, deep breath. And in recent years, I've been sort of feeling the breath as the emissary of the mystery itself, that it is the mystery of life itself, that it's present and making itself known to me every few seconds. We get approximately 15 million breaths in the average life. Do you know which million you're working on? But another, um, another thing that happened with my focus on breath and my focus on the body when I started doing the body scan was that meditation began to bring me down from the story of my life to the fact of my life, and that that became more a part of my identity, life itself. I was one, I, I'm one of the live ones. And being one of the live ones, I share that identity with so many beings. The story of my life is just mine. My little drama, my stuff, my, my story. But the fact of my life brings me into relationship with everything that lives. Uh, my first teacher was S.N. Goenka, and I did uh, a lot of the body scan, which is moving the mind through the body, feeling the sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That gave me a look at impermanence, a visceral feeling of impermanence, realizing that this body is not so much a thing as it is a process, that it is an ever-changing, uh, an ever-changing dance of phenomena going on in here. I re- I'll never forget sitting in in the meditation hall with Goenka chanting, Anicca, Anicca, big baritone voice, and everybody's feeling and feeling and feeling. It was a radical shift of attention.
from the psychological to the biological. Profound new sense of, of identity. And as I paid more attention to my body, I realized also that it's not really mine. It sort of has its own life. It gets tired when it wants to. It gets sore when it wants to. It gets old without my permission. It, uh, I, and I realized that I didn't choose this body. As Mark said about the mind, you know, no catalog of choices was offered. You know, when you're born, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? You get no choice. You just get the standard issue. So focusing on the breath and on the body really began to shift a sense of who I am and my connection to all things. Then, I might ask, where did this personality come from? When I first started meditating, and many other Westerners who I've talked to say they had the same intention Uh, was to get a new personality. (laughs) You know, I thought if I meditated hard enough, I could become someone totally different. Someone who would be easier to live with. But after 40 years, plus years of doing the practice, I'm basically the same person I was when I started. Maybe I don't take myself quite so personally take my personality quite so personally that I have the ability to see that I didn't develop it, I didn't create it or cultivate it. Uh, It's what happened. Ram Dass always likes to say, he says, you know, I still have the same neurosis I've always had, but uh, the same personality basically, but now I think of my personality as a pet. <laughs> and uh, I take care of it. It's always with me. Sometimes I let it off the leash. <laughs> but it's not me. It's not who I am. Throughout history, civilizations have known that people are born with a particular temperament. The early Greeks thought that you were born uh, uh, with a certain mixture of the four humors, phlegm, yellow bile, black bile, and and blood. Thank you. You were a biologist, right? (laughs) I'm a Greek. She's a Greek. Uh, (laughs) uh, And, you know, if you had a lot of of, uh, blood in, in this mixture, you were very sanguine, warm, a warm individual. And the the Greeks and the Chinese associated people with uh, an element of nature. You're stiff like a board or, you're, or like wood, or you're soft like air. You've, you have a flowing quality like water. We all 
have a feel to us. That's what we're born into. We don't own it. It's not ours. Or we didn't create it, at least. So over centuries, different cultures have had different typologies. You have astrology, and you had the Enneagram. You had the Disney typology. (laughs) Dopey, sleepy, or grumpy, you know. (laughs) But the scientists now have dismissed all those old typologies, but they have their own determinants for temperament. They are looking for four different uh, genome uh, genomes that select for four different personality types. Uh, Novelty-seeking, reward-dependent, pain-avoidance, or persistence. And they think they found the, the gene that selects for uh, novelty-seeking. It has an extra-long dopamine receptor. Sounds kind of Freudian to me, but uh, <laughs> but Jerome Kagan, who did studies uh, of long-term studies at Harvard, he uh, his studies were about babies born with a particular temperamental bias to be either bold or cautious individuals, and Kagan found that uh, the children inherent inherit certain neurochemicals that affect how they react to novelty, causing them to be relatively inhibited or uninhibited, traits that last a lifetime. And after many years of studying the origin and nature of temperament, Kagan wrote in his book Galen's Prophecy, I have become more forgiving of the few friends and family members who see danger too easily, rise to anger too quickly, or sink to despair too often. I no longer blame them privately and have become more accepting and less critical of their moods and idiosyncrasies. He saw that, you know, it's not your fault. I think that's the great spiritual message of evolution. You are not your fault. (laughs) So your personality, is that who you are? Do you own it? Can you change it? Or can you accept it? Can you embrace it? So what about the self? That little being that lives in your head that directs the whole show, that runs the whole show. You know who I'm talking about, right? You don't, do you? I don't either. (laughs) It turns out that the scientists can't find it. They they don't know where it is. Um, In the late 90s, Time Magazine came out with a cover story called In Search of the Mind, and it was a summary of the latest neuroscience in, uh, research. I'm sure a lot of people were somewhat shocked to realize that the mind was lost, <laughs> but were probably even more shocked to realize that the scientists couldn't find it. The Time article, and this was the cover story, this was the concluding paragraph, and I had to write it down because I had to write it down. 
Quote, despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. Period. (laughs) This is Time Magazine. Why wasn't there a national panic of some kind? (laughs) The self doesn't exist? (laughs) Neuroscientist Daniel Dennett. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. And more and more, they are finding that, you know, the the brain is a self-organizing system and it makes all of our decisions for us and uh, and there's hardly any conscious awareness present when it it happens. And it processes all of these, 99% of the information that comes into us is processed and sifted through and, and digested and edited before we become conscious of it. And we start to see that in meditation. We can start to see how, you know, we come in late in the game and we can, we can close the gap a little bit, but a conscious awareness uh, comes in after lots of thoughts or decisions have been made, thoughts have been stimulated. In meditation we see that Mental life goes on within us and without us, over and over. And we learn to be okay with that. Relax our instincts, perhaps, and even learn how to intervene in some, to some degree, overriding habits. The great Thai forest master, Ajahn Chah, when we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self. Feeling, memory, perception are all sifting through the mind like leaves in the wind. We can discover this through meditation. So a great gift of Dharma practice can be to examine ourselves and perhaps find a new sense of ease in not taking it all so personally. And realizing that the world is moving through us. That uh, it's okay, we can surrender to some degree. And also as we investigate ourselves, we finally come to see the one who knows. We see this quality we call consciousness or conscious awareness or mindful awareness or this mysterious quality that brings the world into being. And your awareness is the same as my awareness. And I didn't arouse my awareness and I can't turn it off. It's like this magic quality. Nobody knows where it is or what it is. The, the mystics, in the, they, they write 
they write poems to it. You know, they deify consciousness. <coughs> Tibetan Buddhists are, are really good at this. They give they give it wonderful names: original mind, or true true nature of mind. But the predicateless primordial primordial essence. That's one of the names. The predicateless primordial essence. The weaver of the web of appearances. And here's a good one. The outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes throughout the endless duration of time. <laughs> Whatever you call it, we all have this pure knowing. And sometimes we can see it in meditation, in between the thoughts and the mind events. And in meditation, we begin to see through the individual self. Coming down from the story of our life to the fact of our life, the fact of our senses, our bodies, our breath. And this connection, I think, I think Dharma practice is actually deep ecology practice as well. Because we're seeing ourselves as part of nature. So, the last thing the Buddha does before being enlightened is touching the earth. The earth is interpreted as meaning the earth is his witness. The earth gives him the right to be enlightened. I think of it, I like to think of it as him saying, this, this grew my consciousness. My consciousness grew from this ground. And uh, therefore I have the right and the ability to be free from this sense of isolated, separate self. I can see that I am part of all things. All things are part of me. So, we'll sit now, and I invite you to occasionally go into your sitting with a sense of a question, a kind of, hmm, where did that thought come from? Not with an, an, an attempt to answer the question, but to raise it. And to, uh, you can do that with any or all of your experience to begin to shift a little bit your identity.
Who is it that is hungry and goes to dinner? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.